0: Uh, but what happens between where we just left off and where we're about to pick up? What happens in redemptive history? What are we missing as we jump to First Samuel? Well, the people left uh, Mount Sinai eventually, uh, but not immediately. You know, there was some some more instruction to be given about all the what you know priestly instruction, uh, but. God was dwelling in their midst, as we leave them, at least symbolically, as the glory of the Lord had settled upon and filled the tabernacle. And, uh, but, you know, there's that whole book of priestly instruction. And then they, when they do set out, guess what? They rebel again. And we've come to, to almost expect that, haven't we? Um, so uh, when the spies report that there are giants in the land, I mean, God has split the Red Sea for them. He's demonstrated his power many times, but, but the report that there are giants, they rebel, and so God says, you won't enter my, my rest. And so for 40 years they wander until they die in the wilderness and their children are permitted to take the land. And so they, the children do just that. Moses dies delivering a, a great final speech, um, and that's the book of Deuteronomy, and then Joshua takes over. And uh, he leads the children of Israel on dry, through on dry ground too, just like Moses had. He leads them through the river, uh, the Jordan River, and he conquers the land and he divides it up. That's the book of Joshua. Joshua ends this way. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. But then... Oh, my, things go dreadfully wrong. And the book of Judges begins by listing, you know, all the military failures during Joshua's campaign, and they they go and they're supposed to, they they conquered the land, now they're supposed to occupy the land, and there's failure after failure listed in the book of Judges. And then we're told of something that happens over and over again, so let me just read it to you. When Joshua dismissed the the people of Israel... Uh, went to each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who'd seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him within the boundaries of an inheritance. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their, their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served Baals in the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned them and as the Lord had sworn to them. They were in terrible distress. And then the Lord would raise up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and did not do so. So they did this cycle over and over and over again. So that's the setting. A cycle of rebellion, discipline, repentance, deliverance. And then the book of Judges ends with a couple of stories showing just how depraved society had gotten. Israel had begun to look like Sodom. There was no king in Israel, the book tells us over and over, and everyone did as they saw fit. And that is the setting for our story. That's the societal setting. It is a a dark time in Israel's history. The, The flame of truth is not out, but it is dimly burning. Now, you may notice that I'm skipping the book of Ruth. That's because it comes at the end of the book, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I know we've put it in our Bibles here because it fits the setting, uh, but for the Hebrews, it was a different genre, and so I didn't include it in my flow there. Uh, But just as that dark... Period of Israelite society formed the background for Ruth, against which she shone. Right, so it is with Samuel. Uh, okay, now for the family setting, we're introduced to three people—well, six if you count Eli and his two sons. Uh, but in, in focus is this one family made up of, of a man and his two wives, Hannah and Penina. And we'll talk about that briefly. But briefly, but let's jump in. First Samuel chapter one. We'll read the first eight verses to begin with. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite, who had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. Now, Ramathiam's Ophim is going to be called Rama from now on, which is nice. <laughs> Much easier to pronounce. So this certain man that we're introduced here, which seems to suggest he's, he's not anybody special, really, right? Um, he's just your average Joe Israelite. Uh, he's from Ramah in Ephraim, but he's not an Ephraimite. Uh, he's a descendant of Zuth, who is an Ephraimite. Now, boy, the Bible likes to make things tough for us sometimes, doesn't it, right? Um, Ephrath is around Bethlehem, which belongs to Judah. Ephraim is a tribe. Um, And yet, Elkanah wasn't Ephraimite, nor was he from Judah, because he was from Ephrath. He was actually a Levite. The Levites were scattered all through Israel. But his lineage isn't what stands out for us, is it? It, It's the fact that he has two wives uh, and the fact that one of those wives is barren and the other one's mean, right? And we've seen that before. (laughs) I mean, it it makes sense here. uh, There's no king in Israel. Everyone does as he sees fit. And this this polygamous marriage, like every other polygamous marriage you find in the Scriptures, uh, is fraught with conflict. It's a bad idea. It wasn't the original plan for humanity as Genesis two twenty four makes plain, and, and Jesus clearly indicated that a marriage was to be between one man and one woman in Matthew nineteen five. He said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Nevertheless, polygamy is a reality in a fallen society that the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about. So why did Elkanah take another wife? I mean, this man is presented to us otherwise as a a pious man. He goes up year by year to the house of the Lord to worship, right? Um, Well, it's almost certainly because Hannah was barren. He married another woman in order to continue his family line lest a light burn out in Israel. So I want you to appreciate that this situation mirrors precisely that situation we learned of with with Sarai and, and, and Hagar, remember, or Sarah and Hagar. Hannah, though he loved her, and she... He couldn't give him children. She couldn't give him children. And we're told why. The Lord had closed her womb. So Elkanah took a rival for Hannah. Now that's the language of the Scriptures. Anytime there is a second wife, this is the language. It tells you how there's conflict here, and this is not a good idea, right? Two wives are rivals by definition. Well, Penina could have babies, lots of them, and she never let Hannah forget that critical distinction between them, and it seems to be particularly when they went up to worship the Lord that she would rub this in. I mean, after all, in, that, in, in part of that swath of Scripture that we, we skipped in that, in that last speech of Moses, for example, in Deuteronomy... He says, you shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. So even our livestock are supposed to be able to have babies, right? Whatever passage might be expounded in the, in the tabernacle that day, you could, you could sort of imagine Penina saying, oh, you know, this is one of my, my favorite readings, but, but the promises of Deuteronomy are especially clear to me. Don't you remember those, Hannah? Or don't you remember, you know, Exodus? None shall be married, miscarry, or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. God promises to to open our womb. What's wrong with you, Hannah? Like Job's friends, Penina, and the whole of society, really, it wasn't just Penina. The whole society sort of reasons from her suffering to her own culpability. I mean, God had specifically said that we would not have this problem if only we obeyed. You have this problem, ergo. So we open this book to see an ordinary girl in Israel, unable to have a child, though she desperately wants one, being mocked for it, and yet she is she's a truly pious girl, regarded as the opposite. Have you ever noticed that God always seems to do this, especially at critical moments in redemptive history? Sarai was barren until Isaac was born, the son of promise. Then then Isaac's wife, Rebecca, remember she struggled with barrenness until she had the twins Jacob and Esau. And and Jacob too, uh, with, with his favorite wife, Rachel, right? She was barren, and then you had the war of the the babies. Well, so it is here. Hannah's barren, but the child she's going to bear is a special child. He's going to be a prophet, a priest, and the anointer of kings, but she doesn't know that. All she knows at this point is sorrow. So she prays. She goes to worship. She worships. But she just doesn't eat. Now, to eat this meal is to speak of the peace you have with God. This is the, the peace offering that they would have been eating from. And, and it's not as though Hannah's mad at God, but she's not at peace in her soul. And so she fasts and she prays. And Elkanah gave her a double portion of the meal because he loved her. <laughs> Now, she's fasting, and yet she gets a double portion. So it's going to be pretty evident that she's fasting. Um, And, you know, undoubtedly, he notices that he's pouring out food for Penina and and her sons and her daughters, and then he gets to Hannah. So you can sort of see why, out of love, he would want to to give her a double portion, right? But that's just going to provoke Penina, right? She's favored, so... But I might have felt a little like Leah, prolific but unloved. And that's sad too. But she acts more like Hagar than Leah. She's not kind, um, she's abusively unkind, like Sarai was. The, um, the focus, though, is on Hannah's sadness. And, uh, and Elkanah picks up on that. It's not. You know, it's not hard to notice that someone's fasting, especially when you give them a double portion, right? So he he gives her, her this double portion because he wants to make her joyous, and she's turning it down. Now, I am stunned by how many people rake Elkanah over the coals here for his words. They pick on the supposed self-centeredness of his words when he says, Am I not more to you than ten sons? They say, Well, he really ought to have said, You are to me more than ten sons. Cut the guy some slack. Um, A husband's great desire, his job in some ways, is to please his wife. Elkanah did not deprive her of food or clothing or conjugal rights. He loved her. He genuinely loved her. He tried to demonstrate that love with a double portion, um, which could feel very much like a rejection of him. I don't know if you remember, but Jacob got kind of angry at Rachel over this sort of thing. Do you remember she said, "'Give me children or I'll die.'" And Jacob's anger was kindled in chapter 30 of Genesis against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God with who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So Elkanah looks at his wife's sadness. There's nothing he can do about her barrenness. God has closed her womb. But he can strive to overcome her sadness with love. It's all he can offer, but it is the best he can offer. And so he asks her, can't you find joy in my love? Can I not make you happy? That is my goal as a husband. So I say cut Alcona some slack here. I don't think these words are self-centered. I think he's very much trying to say, I love you. It hurts me to see you sad. What can I do? After they had eaten drunk, drunken Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. By the way, this, this is not the only place in this passage where we'll read the word temple which might strike you as odd because the temple's not built yet, right? It's still a tent. It's still a tabernacle. I don't know what to do with that other than to say maybe temple has a broader semantic range than I realized. I don't know. Anyway, verse 10, She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Is that a rash vow? I mean, we've seen a lot of those as we've gone along in the Scriptures, haven't we? I mean, very frequently when people make these vows, they're rash vows. But if so, Elkanah could have overruled it. That's one of the laws that we skipped as we rushed over to 1 Samuel. But this isn't a rash vow. This is a very carefully considered prayer. Hannah is a woman who knows how to fast. What you communicate in a fast is a schedule of of relative worth in your own heart. You, You demonstrate the desire of your heart by depriving your body of comfort or pleasure. Well, notice... Her forward fast it's a forward fast you give me the son I'll fast forever I'll fast from the joys of motherhood just for the sake of being a mother. you know sometimes we don't ask, we, we don't get what we ask for because we ask for the wrong motives to, to spend what we get on our vain pleasures well motherhood is no vain pleasure and yet she's willing to give it up if only she can have the vindication of her life. You know, like Samson, Samuel's going to be a Nazarite from birth. Now, Samson's not going to abide by the rules. Uh, he certainly eats honey, for example, which you're not supposed to do. But Samuel will. Verse, we're in verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And he said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Uh, And then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, Eli is no bastion of piety. We're going to find that out. Uh, We'll soon see how his family treats the sacrifices of the Lord. They're greedy and Eli's fat, which is circumstantial evidence, but it doesn't look good for him. Uh, but he is the high priest. And he's not wrong to rebuke Hannah here. He gets rigged over the coals too for jumping the gun and rebuking him. Well, I'm sure he's seen a lot of, it, This is, there's no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. He's probably seen the gamut. Assuming that she's drunk, he's right to challenge her on it. Having assessed the situation, he acted appropriately for his assessment. Now, he was wrong, but he changes. He doesn't insist that he was right either. If he were right, his rebuke would have been spot on. He wasn't, and Hannah let him know it. But... Notice the tone with which she lets him know it. It's not, how dare you make such an assumption about me. Rather, she's not aggressive at all. Rather, all she seems to care about is that he, the high priest who will represent her before God, that he has a good estimation of her. That's what she cares about. She needs him to see her as she is, as broken, not rebellious. You know, a drunkard's not selfless, but in her prayer, the only thing she seeks for herself is vindication. She's willing up to give the, the fruit of her womb to the Lord in thanks. So... She defends her integrity pleadingly with Eli and Eli recognizes his error and he blesses her. You know, Eli was not a perfect priest. He may not have even been a particularly good priest, but he was God's priest. He didn't choose the office and run for it. He was appointed to it by God. He was faithful to rebuke the wayward here. We're going to see that He's not so good with his sons. Uh, And and when he finds out that she wasn't wayward, he he was humble enough to change course, and so he blessed her. And and Hannah goes away happy after that. She takes takes the blessing of God's appointed high priest because of his office. She takes his blessing as coming from the throne of, of grace itself, and so she goes away happy. Now, the high priest was only a picture of Christ, but the high priest was a picture of Christ. And so the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. So even this picture, as God dealt with our forefathers under age, by virtue of His office, His words have great significance. and We find something similar in the Gospels. In John chapter 11, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one should die for the people and that the whole that, than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but for also to gather into one nation the children of God who are scattered abroad. So... The priest speaks, and indeed God remembers Hannah. She's given a son verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Rama. Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, uh, Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for he, she, she said, "I have asked for him from the Lord." Now, in the next few verses, Hannah refuses to go up with Elkanah to worship the Lord. Uh, and I remember thinking when I read this the first time, I remember going, oh, no, oh, no, what are you doing? Is this okay? <laughs> is she beginning to have second thoughts? Is she going to renege on her vow? Uh, but no, it's quite the opposite. I think, I think this is the situation. She spoke to the high priest rather the high priest spoke to her. And, and, more, and, and so from her vantage point, I can't go back until I can show how abundantly grateful I am. And I can't, I can't show how abundantly grateful I, can, I am until I can sacrifice the very thing I've asked for. Until I can leave him, I can't appear before the Lord again. So, And he's still nursing. It would be a burden to leave him with with him now. But as soon as he's able, she drops him off. And when she does, the text makes note of how young and little he is. So she's not delaying from regret or reluctance or anything like that. She's waiting until she could appear before the Lord with hands full of loving sacrifice. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you, wait until you've weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull. They brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped him there. Notice how the, uh, the slaughter of the bull and the delivery of Eli are coordinated there in verse 25. Uh, and then are you struck by that word lent? <laughs> what does that mean, He lent to the Lord? Well, I'm struck by it too, but uh, here's the thing. In Hebrew... The, the, the verb to ask is sha'al. And to lend, this verb that she uses, is the same verb. It's just in a different stem. Uh, and usually the stem means cause to whatever that verb was. But that doesn't work here. Um, lend works for that stem in the sense that it's been used that way. And so you can see why the translator's go there. Uh, all I want you to appreciate, and I think if you, were, if you were reading this in Hebrew, you would see that she asked for Samuel, and whatever she's doing is, is a word that's connected to ask. She's, she's delivering, you know, related to her, to her asking. Uh, anyway, the text says he worshiped the Lord there, which is interesting. Peek ahead to chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So he's ministering before the Lord before he actually knows the Lord personally. Now I'd like to read the first 11 verses of chapter 2 before we stop this morning. And the reason is this. This story sets up the book. And this song concludes this story. You might say this song sets up the book. Uh, Just as Miriam sang after they crossed the sea in Exodus 15, a song that highlights the sovereign power of God and the vindication of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked, so Hannah sings here. And the song that she sings sets the theme of the book that's going to follow. All of 1 and 2 Samuel um, are going to flow out of the theme set by Hannah here. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who had many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. The Lord makes poor, the Lord makes rich. He brings low, He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the uh, the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now, did you catch that end of her prayer? He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There is no king in Israel. Everyone does as they see fit. Well, you know, actually, even Moses spoke of the coming king. In Deuteronomy 17, he says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, foreigner over you who is not your brother. But... Through prophetic insight, I suppose, Hannah sees that the one who is coming, she introduces for us here the messianic hope, as messianic hope. She's the first to put that name to the hope that has connected all of God's people ever since the garden when he spoke to the woman and said that her seed would crush the serpent's seed's head, right? That's the promise that has connected all of God's people Hannah introduces the the idea of an anointed one. There is a Christ coming. (laughs) Vindication is the theme of her song, the great reversal. When this upside-down world is righted, when the haughty are humbled, when the low are lifted... And this theme is most prominently captured in verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. You think of David and Goliath, right? It's a picture of what Hannah sings of. And then listen to these words of David. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of all of them and observes their deeds, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. You know, Mary marveled at the work of God that was that was going on in her womb with a song. And and she modeled that song after Hannah's song. My soul magnifies the Lord. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. Brothers and sisters, the reason that it's such a prominent theme in the Scriptures is because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And let's face it, until Jesus returns, we are all prone to stumble. With the, with the psalmist in, in Psalm 73, Asaph, he recounts how you know, he, he almost gave up the fight. He looks around and he sees how the, the wicked are prospering. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have it easy and they are so proud and so mean. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. But that's not true. It's not in vain. And the psalmist knows it, and that's what he says next. He says, if I had had spoken that way, oh, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, when I put myself in the place of Hannah, suffering and seeing prosperity in others. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. That's the application, brothers and sisters. As hard as life is, and, it, and it, it is sometimes, really, we need to remember that God is sovereign, that God watches over the steps of those who love him. He is our refuge. And uh, as hard as life is, especially with just this kind of hardship, when a womb is closed, When our heart's desires aren't granted. You know, Hannah did eventually get her heart's desire, but we don't always. Hannah teaches us that there will be a day when every tear will be wiped from our eyes. When we will have no more enemies. We will have no more sorrow or suffering or pain or death. We declare, or I'm saying this is the takeaway, we are to speak to ourselves with the psalmist. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The Lord is your refuge. He's proven how much He loves us. He is certainly more to us than ten sons. So let's go forth declaring His goodness And his mighty deeds of salvation. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have redeemed us. That We look upon your plan for the world and we recognize its beauty. We look at a dark and twisted generation. And when we hear your promises of reversal and deliverance and vindication, we rejoice at the hope that it offers. Hold us firm in that hope, Lord. Make us patient. Let us, like Hannah, endure the hardship and sorrow without lashing out or sinning ourselves. Teach us to to carry our burdens to you and to wait for you. And teach us to trust. Hannah was given her heart's desire. Sometimes we aren't, Father. Give us a faith that endures trials and testing and hardship. Give us the patience to wait for Christ's appearing. And Holy Spirit, don't let us waver, but keep our eyes heavenward. And when we suffer or see the wicked prosper, let us not betray the great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. But let us persevere in our pursuit of holiness, for Christ's sake. We ask it, Amen. Amen. And in reflection on what we.